Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Value Added, the real estate podcast. On today's episode, we're chatting with John Manis. John is the founder and CEO of Houston, Texas-based Pinnacle Storage Properties. John is responsible for driving the culture, direction, and overall operation of the organization. He has been involved in self-storage since 2005, serving in multiple executive level roles. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Value Added, the real estate podcast where we speak with the brightest minds in the world of real estate who provide, create, and realize value in an ever-changing market. And now your host, Nick Walters. This whole thing will play into hopefully some of the stuff we talk about is... um, so I always say money doesn't change you. Money makes you who you are. And there's a guy, my brother is just telling me, there's a guy who's an influencer online that walks up to people randomly on the street and says, hey, can I have your Venmo? And people go, what do you want my Venmo for? He said, well, I don't have Facebook. I don't have Twitter. I don't have Instagram. And how I stay in contact with people is through Venmo. And the people go, okay, I'll give you my Venmo. And the people that give him the Venmo, he transfers them $100 instantly, just like that, because he's an influencer online and he makes all this money through being an influencer. Well, my brother Joe is on his Venmo looking at all the comments. And at the bottom, at one of the comments, he found a guy from Utah that said, I'm going to be honest with you. You can transfer me money. I'd really appreciate it, but I can't pay it forward. I'm living with my mom. I lost my job. My alternator in my truck went out. I got a six-year-old son, blah, 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 blah. So my brother clicks on that guy and instant messages him and starts talking back and forth and says, can you talk live? And the guy said, yes. He said, in the top right corner, click on the video. So they do, and they talk live. And now we have shirts that say, it's a manus thing you wouldn't understand, right? So What Joe's doing is he's going to get all of us manuses. There's six kids. He's going to get all of us to rally up $100 a piece and send it to this dude in Utah. That's pretty cool. Because it's a manus thing. Because money doesn't change you. Money makes you who you are. Well, at at the end of the day, we all need money to live, right? Money's just a tool. So money's a tool to live is all it is. And it's a. I try to teach this to a lot of different people is, Money, money's a tool, like for you and I, money's a tool to get deals done, right? Where we look at that a little bit differently because money's a tool to get deals done. And then, you know, we keep a little piece of it so that it becomes a tool that we can live the lifestyle we want to live, right? So whether it's food or electric or housing or, or a car or whatever it is, um, it just becomes a tool to help you with that. And the, and the more you think in that mindset and you think, I I was just telling a girl that I'm mentoring yesterday. I said, think of it in this way. If you're going to try to build a house and you come to build that house with just a hammer, you're going to do okay. You're going to build something. It's not going to be the greatest something. But if you come with a saw and a drill and a hammer and a level and a, and a string line and a, and so on and so on and so on, you're going to build a better house, right? Well, if you think of money in the means of a hammer and a drill and all that kind of stuff, you're going to build a better house. And sometimes if you are trying to build that house and you don't have a saw, you borrow that saw from one of your neighbors, right? 
That's exactly what I do is I go raise private equity from other people. I borrow their tool in order for me to be successful. And I keep a little piece of that tool when it's all done and I give them back their tool. And that's how I teach people how money works. That's a pretty darn good way to put it, uh, which is a, a great segue into the show. Uh, what's in your toolbox? I got all kinds of people, <laughs> processes, product. Uh, I mean, all of that is a tool, right? And if you think of it in that manner, then your, your toolbox is either empty because you think you have an empty toolbox or you go around with an empty toolbox and you put in it so that you can then help other people. And like I said to Joe just now, like I piss away a hundred bucks, like it's candy, you know, I'm just like, and, and I, I went to watch the Steelers game <laughs> in the middle of the afternoon the other day with one of my business partners and one of the guys that helps me raise money. And we went to a Steelers bar pub and we had a couple drinks and food and things like that. And it was 150 bucks for bar food. <laughs> and, and I was like, you know, I pulled out a corporate credit card and expensed it and off I went. Right. Well, if I can blow money at a pub at $150 a shot, I can give some dude a hundred dollars fixes. So Absolutely. I'll just skip the pub the next time. Exactly. <laughs> so, so and that's, and my brother thinks the same way. So it's, it's kind of, that's why I was like, dude, I gotta go. <laughs> so, so your brother, Joe, uh, this is, this is, uh, this is John Manis, by the way, uh, yeah. founder of Pinnacle Storage Properties down in Houston. Your brother, is he in business with you with Pinnacle? So Joe's an investor in a couple, in three of my deals. Um, his kids are an investor in one of my deals. And so my nephews, and then his wife's an investor in one of my deals as well. So. Gotcha. So let's, uh, let's go back to, to your, uh, your career. It started, it started in the big, big box industry. And I guess it continued into the, the, the big box industry with self storage, but Tell us just, uh, you know, give, give us a couple minutes about how your career got started uh, and how you got transitioned into uh, self-storage investment. I'll go way back at, at 19 years old. Um, I got a job in the Deppert Mall in Deppert, New Jersey at John Wanamaker Department Store as a salesperson in the domestics department. <laughs> so I started retail at 335 an hour in 1985. And uh, no college, you know, I never went to college. And, um, and I, I remember in that interview with Debbie Kintai, who was the HR director at the time for that store, she said, you know, where you see yourself in 10 years. And I said, well, where I see myself in 10 years is being able to be a store manager of retail like this. And she said, how do you propose you do that? And I said, well, I propose I learn the job that you're going to hire me for. And then I, at the same time, I'm learning the next job. And then same time I learned a next job and so on and so on until I become a store manager. Interesting enough, it was 1985 and I had hair down to here and I was a metal head and a rocker. And she said, all right, well, are you willing to cut off your hair? It's ironic because I'm bald now, right? <laughs> but oh, now I took a deep breath. I said, yeah, I mean, as long as I can start to achieve that goal and so I went into retail at 19 years old, no college education. It's one of the only industries that allow you to grow without a college education and move up the food chain. And that was at 19. And by the time I was 26 years old, I was the store manager of a Hills department store in Charleston, West Virginia with 
150 team members and running a $20 million uh, department store at 26. And so that springboarded my quote career, but I, um, I learned leadership along the way. I learned different skills other than just how to stock shelves and how to sell to customers and so on. And through that, I later on spent 17 years in retail, became a district manager and regional manager and so on. And at like 36 years old, just got burnt out with it and um, quit my job with no job, moved from North Carolina, moved in with my mom at 36 years old, <laughs> trying to decide what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And um, took a five month hi- hiatus from working, went fishing a couple of days a week and cleared my head and, and knew that I liked the multi-store facet of leadership versus just going to one store every single day. So I started to apply to jobs like uh, general manager of three warehouses, where I applied to a couple uh, regional managers of multifamily. And I applied to a district manager's job of self-storage company um, that was called Uncle Bob Self-Storage, the fourth largest self-storage company in the United States. It's now called Life Storage. Um, and ended up interviewing with them and didn't get the job. Ironically, I got the thank you, but no thank you letter that I still have to this day. And like two weeks later, they called me back and said, hey, are you still interested? The, the guy we made an offer to turned it down and you were our second choice. Thank God I was the second choice because I went on to be regional vice president of that company, uh, became number one in sales as the district manager for three years in a row. They promoted me to RVP. And from there, I networked back to Texas. They moved me to Buffalo, New York moved back to Texas as the COO of a regional player here that had 55 self-storage companies. Uh, so I always say that I learned how to run them at Uncle Bob's. I learned how to buy them and fix them up at the regional player here locally. And then four and a half years ago, went out on my own and started buying all my own stuff. And here we are four and a half years later with over $100 million worth of self-storage. My, my point to the story about Debbie Kintai about starting here and wanting to end up here is the same mentality we take now inside of our company. As I started here as an owner and I learned about debt and I learned about equity and I learned about how to structure deals and so on and so on. So I'm on a constant learning pattern all the time to get to that next level. So now that we own $100 million, what's the next thing? So we're looking at family office and some small venture capitalist companies to do some restructuring that'll then take us to the next level and so on and so on to get to where we want to as goals. You know, our goal is to be a billion dollar company. So how do you get there? You can't get there by doing the same thing over and over again. So you gotta put more, put more tools in your, in your toolbox, right? Toolbox. That is correct. So let's you, dig into the, let's dig into the self-storage industry as a whole. Uh, self-storage and multifamily, I believe are, uh, according to many accounts, are the most resilient, recession-proof or recession-resistant asset classes, uh, and self-storage even more so than than multifamily. So why self-storage? Because I was going to say that. <laughs> so so let's let's hear it. Let's hear it from the horse's mouth. Why self-storage? Well, um, just for your listeners, I mean, what happens when people lose their house and lose their apartments? And you know, you're talking multifamily where you could do big scale single family, right? So if, if somebody's a single family operator that owns 10 or 20 houses in their local market, they technically have a small multifamily 
they just happen to be in different places. Um, what happens when those people move out? What do they do with all their crap? They put it in storage. So now what happens when in single family, somebody's building a house or even in multifamily when they're moving out to then buy a house and so on, what do they do with all their crap? Use storage. So when the economy's good, storage booms. When the economy's bad, storage booms. So it's not only, it's not recession proof because I was with the publicly traded company in 2008 and they actually had a 2.5% decrease in same store sales year over year. One year out of their 35 year existence was that particular year. So because of that, they say that it's not recession proof, it's recession resistant because it's, it's had one or two bad years through the whole thing. Um, so it tends to follow better trends than multifamily and single family because in the end, when businesses expand, they use storage. When businesses condense, I mean, you hear right now about all these restaurants going out of business and so on. What do they do with all their equipment? Mm-hmm. They put in storage. So, so, and then you got your base customer that always uses storage. And then you got all these extra ups and downs when it comes to good economies and bad economies that actually use storage. And that's what drives rate. That's what drives profitability and so on. So I would argue that storage is a better resist, uh, recession resistant than multifamily. Yeah. And, and I believe the numbers show that, uh, especially during the last downturn in 08-09 and then now continuing to, you know, this, this, this current uh, correction that we're, that we're in, yep. right? Yep. Now, let me ask you, there's been a lot of, a lot of uh, storage REITs that have, that have hit the scene in the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. You have CubeSmart, Life Storage, uh, a handful of others. How are they uh, disrupting the market with regards to uh, self-storage, either acquisitions or, uh, or ground of development? Um, well, good, bad, and ugly, depends on who's, what side you're on, is the development cycle has virtually stopped. So, um, and mainly because people lending against it have seen it as more risky so they're less likely to lend either equity or debt against a ground up than they are against a current cash flow that already has, it's already making money. So for me as an owner operator of existing and not one that does development, that's a good thing because less supply means better pricing for us. More supply, you know, you got to be competitive because they also have a mortgage to pay and so do we. And you can't, you can't pay a mortgage with empty space. So you're competing for the same demand in that market. The, the one thing about storage that, that is interesting is you can't make demand. There's only a certain amount of demand in that market. And the reason is, is people don't wake up every day and go, hey, I think I'm going to go buy a self-storage unit today, right? Um, unlike you wake up one day and go, hey, I want a new pair of boots or I want a new shirt or whatever. You can wake up spontaneously and buy something. In storage, it's changed by circumstance, you know, expanding a household, condensing a household, expanding a business, condensing a business. It's, it's typically a stressful type of situation that feeds the demand of storage. So demand and storage can go up and down, but 
It's not something that is spontaneously created. So because of that, um, when it comes to what the REITs do, is they chase where that demand might be. So for me as an owner-operator, it's kind of cool that the development cycle has come to an end because it really helps our existing portfolio over time. Sure. And, and let's also note that uh, you know, we, we had a, a quick call the other day and you mentioned that you're, you're not trying to compete with these big guys because you're not looking at tier one cities. You're looking at more you know, secondary, even more tertiary markets in, um, out, in, in more uh, uh, suburban or rural areas, right? Yeah, we, I always say we look for undermanaged, underenhanced, and underexpanded self-storage properties in markets that are secondary, suburban, and some tertiary type of markets. Like, we don't mind being in a market that's eight to 15,000 population as long as we're the number one provider there and there's little to no competition. Um, but our target market is... 45,000 people and a 45,000 medium income. So where a lot of your REITs or your institutional players look for 90,000 population and a $90,000 average income, and then they look for, you know, less than the national average is 7.2 square foot per capita. So they're looking for something less than that, or what I'll call in and around that. Some of them in a Growing market will go into a 10 square foot per capita if there's $120,000 and 120,000 population, they'll go into a more saturated market because that market could afford to lower rates a little bit and still make their numbers. Where in tertiary secondary markets, I can't do that. I've got to be the price leader. I've got to be the service leader. I've got to be the class A facility in that market. And and everybody else, the mom and pops are following my lead versus me following the REITs lead because the REITs will do this. You, you ask how they're a disruptor. I think the number one thing that they're a disruptor in is they have a hell of a lot deeper pockets than I do. So because they're using Wall Street type of money, whether it's on the equity side or the debt side, they can afford to go to a store, tank rates really, really hard to get their lease up above 90%. To then drive rate later where they don't have to technically worry about a mortgage payment. Where I've got to worry about a mortgage payment and I have to worry about paying my investors. So I can't just go in and tank rates. So I think a lot of times where REITs become more of the disruptor is when they come in and cannibalize rates in a market over a one or two year time frame. And the small mom and pop operator like myself can't compete because I still got a mortgage to pay. So I need the cash flow. I can't tank my rates right alongside of them and collect 30% less than I was last year. I still got a mortgage to pay. Sorry, I was just going to say, I'm seeing more urban infill development with regards to the storage REITs uh, than I am private, uh, you know, the private sector. Uh, are you, are you seeing the, the, the larger REITs out in your neck of the woods at all um, with regards to more, I guess, the more secondary markets? Um, no, because it's, it's harder for them to get their numbers to work in secondary and tertiary type of markets than it is for me to get my numbers to work. Right. Buy- when, they're, when they're looking at populations twice as, 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 mm-hmm. uh, twice as dense as yours, right? Yeah. So, so understand one thing about the self-storage industry is the REITs themselves 
except for one, are not developers. So if you're seeing REIT development, typically speaking, if you're seeing REIT development in these urban core areas, it is a regional player that has gone to the REITs and signed a contract with the REITs to third-party manage their property with the third with the REIT having first right of refusal to buy their property when they're ready to sell. So it has the flagship name on it, but chances are it's not technically owned by the REIT. So, so are they licensing that name in the period of their ownership, the developer, while, while the REIT um, is also managing the property? So I wouldn't technically say it's licensing it, but they're, they're signing contract through third-party management to have the rights to use it during that time frame. So you'll see a lot of for sale things from brokers that say one of the REITs names, and then next to it, it says third-party managed in parentheses. And that's how you know that it's a private operator that built that and contracted, even though it has the REIT name on the side of the bill. Um, but, but that REIT, if it's for sale through a broker, that REIT passed on it because the private operator is asking too much for it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, with regards to the market that we're currently in, um, as you're continuing to underwrite properties and, and, uh, and acquire properties in this market, <clears throat> what is the, what's the glaring difference in your underwriting now versus a year ago? Uh-huh. Or, or, how, or how are you underwriting properties differently now than a year ago? I'm not. So, so I'm, not, I'm not buying as many deals, though, either. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> I mean, there's some realities, right? And reality is interest rates are a little bit less this year than what they were last year, a year ago. But it also tells you that interest rates have to go up. I mean, there's all this rumor about negative interest rates at some point and so on. But but even if we get into a negative interest rate environment over the next two, three, to four years, it's still got to go up at some point. So when I'm ready to exit, I'm 53 years old now. I don't see myself not working to, you know, even at 70, I'll still be working. I'll just be working at a different level than what I am now. Um, the difference there is I've got to predict five years and 10 years from now how I'm going to exit that. So I exit on a higher cap rate than what I'm buying on now. And I have to because interest rates are going to go up. So that I always say your money's made when you buy the property and your money's lost when you sell the property. So I've got to predict what interest rates are going to happen three, five, seven years from now if I'm going to exit that particular asset. So when you look at it from a year ago till now, one of the things that you get from us as a private investor is we are very, very disciplined on our underwriting. And I don't follow these mega trends. I don't follow the, I don't, I don't chase the get rich quick overnight scheme. I do chase the get rich over time scheme. Um, but like, I don't chase the top 50 MSAs or what I call the NFL cities. I. Um, I don't, I don't go where all that movement that you were just talking about is. And the reason that I don't is it's harder to make my numbers work because of how disciplined I am with my investment strategy and my investors. So, I mean, right now, if you look at the REITs, 
you can go buy a REIT stock tomorrow, right? And they're going to pay you three, four, maybe five at most percent on that money. Or you can come invest with me. And based on my discipline, I'm going to give you 15% plus on that same exact money. Am I higher risk than them? Yeah. So I'm going to give you a higher percentage than them. Um, So because of that, I don't change the way I underwrite because I underwrite from an operational mentality, undermanaged, underenhanced, underexpanded. So I, I don't just buy that cash flow. I buy the cash flow, but then I underwrite based on what I know we can do with the asset. So my disciplines haven't changed. It just means I might buy a little bit less properties 2020 or 2021 because I'm not willing to pay all that extra money for this hype of lower interest rates. What are the risks that you're uh, conveying to your investors as you're presenting deals to them? You ready? The risk is you can lose all your money. There you go. <laughs> There's your risk. But, you're, but, but, but contrary to the multifamily <laughs> market that is very focused on population growth, job growth, I mean, you don't want to really, unless, unless it's in your backyard, you don't want to invest in a market that's declining in population or, or trending that way or, uh, you know, um, a, I mean, a, big for, a big Fortune 500 company leaves the town. I mean, those are those are big those are big metrics that that are are underwritten in in typical multifamily deals. But um, it seems to me with self storage, r- rooftops aren't aren't as important. Uh, people do you know drive to 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 uh, storage facilities. Um, you know, so what? It's typically a three to five mile radius when you're dealing with suburbia USA. I mean, most people won't drive more than three to five miles to store their stuff based on convenience. Um, but there's, there's also some realities behind all of that when it, comes to, um, when it comes to buying in the underwrite. That's what I was talking about, you know, chasing these trends is um, if you chase those trends based on and this is the problem with a lot of developers. And prior to January, prior to the pandemic and all that kind of stuff, I was way more stressed out and way more nervous about where the storage industry was back in January. Talking internally, I was way more stressed out about where we were as a cycle than I am right now. Like, you know, everything you hear on the news about businesses closing and all that kind of stuff doesn't pertain to us. What pertains to us is the overdevelopment cycle. And back in January, these institutional players were just throwing money at anybody. I mean, if, if you know how to swing a hammer and had had some ability to lay concrete, they'd give you a, a $5 million loan to build a self-storage property. So everybody would be like, I, I heard the CEO of CubeSmart speak in Chicago last July. I think it was July. Um, and he said... Um, you know, if you ask anybody about their development deal, they're going to be like, this is the number one development deal we have. And it's because this is a booming market and this is a growing market. And this is a, you know, all the rooftops and all the, the new apartments and blah, 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 right? And he said, not one person on the development side of the cycle will tell you, I got a horrible project. I think it's in a market that's oversaturated. I think it's in a market, right? So... And that was the problem is they were throwing money at people so vigorously that 
people like myself that own stores in that market were being cannibalized so hard. I, I have three properties in Katy, Texas. If you read the articles about Katy, Texas, there is 40,000 new apartment doors coming to Katy, Texas. And if you look around, they're here. I'm sitting in one of the stores. That's why I'm doing like that. But they're here. There's an apartment complex right across the street. There's one that butts up against this property that was just built. There's one around the corner. There's one across the highway. All of these doors, 40,000 new uh, doors right around us. So everybody's like, okay, I need to build there. Well, I bought this property two and a half, three years ago. The market was at $1.10 a square foot. I'm achieving 82 cents a square foot right now because there's been 400,000 square foot of storage put in this market because they'll throw money at anybody. And but what happens is we're all competing for the same market share. Is there more growth? Sure. But it's more growth based on market share. It's all it is. So there's a, there's a misconception when it comes to having that institutional mentality, like you talk about in multifamily, of I'm going to go into the markets that are booming and growing um, because everybody and their brother wants to go into those same markets and no one wants to admit that it's a bad idea <laughs> because my deal's the best. Well, yeah, your, your deal's the best, but I got brand new U-Haul, 140,000 square foot. I can throw a rock and hit it from here. Well, I got a, a community self-storage right here that's 110,000 square foot. I've got a mom and pop right here that's 80,000 square foot, and I expanded 66,000 square foot. I was the first one on the ground. So I was like, yeah. Well, then all this other three, 400,000 square foot comes along, and now I get crushed. And the mom and pop can't compete with you all. They got a hell of a lot deeper pockets than that. So there's this misconception in storage to go where the growth is. And you really need to go where the growth isn't. And most importantly, you need to buy off of existing cash flow, not this pie in the sky. I think I can do this with the, like, I won't, I won't buy somebody's potential value. I will only buy their cash flow that exists right now, knowing that I can improve upon it. So I'm like, a lot of these guys will be like, well, yeah, but you can improve rates and yeah, I'm not going to pay you for that. <laughs> That's the value that I bring to the table. And that's the difference. When you say about my underwriting and how the markets have changed or the differences and what the REITs are doing, it all ties together, right? And that's the difference between us is I won't pay somebody for added value in a top tier market that I have to compete with an extra 400,000 square foot because I've already made those mistakes. (laughs) So I'm not going to keep doing it. I'm going to go to secondary markets. Like we're in Nacogdoches, Texas. So 45,000 people, income of $45,000 or more, um, has Stephen F. Austin. We bought that property four years ago doing $56,000 a month. It's doing $100,000 a month right So to your listeners, don't go build in Nacogdoches, Texas, okay? <laughs> so, and there's, I mean, that's the difference is we like towns like Nac, Livingston, you know, uh, Spicewood outside of Austin, Taylor Hutto outside of Austin. These are the towns we buy in. They're suburbia USA where you and I would live and enjoy a good lifestyle, good schools, all that kind of stuff. But the REITs aren't like, oh my God, we got to go build there. What does uh, 
Pinnacle storage uh, look like for the future? What do you guys have planned? Um, a lot of the same. So, you know, um, you do what works and what's working. Um, we will continue to buy four or five deals a year through grassroots um, equity raise. I mean, we've raised $32 million of private equity in the last four and a half years <clears throat> um, through friends and family and high net worth individuals. And um, so we'll continue to do all that. We're in the process of doing a recapitalization right now on seven of our properties and you know, trying to use what I'll call family office type of money to buy out existing investors so that we give them the return that they've been looking for. And then they can recycle their money into new properties. And we get to keep these properties and allow us to grow a relationship and a platform with that money as well. So then we can double our volume. So, you know, we've done 25 deals in the last four and a half years. Um, we currently own and operate 19. Um, we have one development deal that we did a JV on that we're, it's not broke ground yet, but we're trying to sell it. Um, so we have 20 in the pipeline right now. So I can see two years from now, us being 40 properties, and then five years from now, us being 60 properties, and, and so on and so on. You know, the, the goal for us is to become a billion-dollar company. And it's funny because when me, me and Robbie and Eric got together to do this four and a half years ago, um, our goal was to do $100 million of storage in a five-year time frame. We achieved that in about two and a half years, and we went, okay, what's next? Now what's next? What the hell? What do we do now? So we've we've done some other stuff, and you know we we constantly look at our own infrastructure to see how we can position ourselves to build. And um, so for us, it's continuing a lot of the same, but making sure we have a good team, make sure we have a tight team, so a team that can elevate us to that next level, so that we're prepared for that growth. And worst case scenario, we'll do four or five deals a year over the next five years, or we get the recap done, find a good partner in the family office space. Um, as far as private equity goes, you know, in three years, we could be 60, 70 properties. So it really depends on who believes in us. What's one thing we haven't discussed that listeners need to know about the self-storage space? Um, I think the biggest thing is, is if you're going to wake up one day, if you're listening to this podcast and you're, you're going to wake up one day and say, oh my God, I need to do storage, go find a strong operator. And, and I don't think the operators get enough credit for what they know how to do and the value they bring to the table. A lot of times what, what most people don't realize is self-storage is an operating business, just like the Walmarts and Kmarts of the world it's an operating business that then pays for the real estate play. And a lot of people that are listening to this podcast are waking up to the real estate play and not giving much value to the operator. I hear a lot of people, particularly on the institutional side, say, well, I can just go hire one of the REITs and let them manage it. Yeah, that, that's true. You can. But do they care as much? I mean, they don't own it. They don't have to pay the mortgage. They're not on the risk for the, for the equity that you went to people and said, I'm going to try to get you this type of return. You know, they don't, 
They don't have that. You do. So yes, you can go find a third-party management company, but if you're going to truly do this, go find a strong operator and partner with that operator because you'll make money in it without that strong operator, but you'll make a hell of a lot more money if you find a strong John, how can our listeners learn a little bit more about you and Pinnacle? I'll do my closing. Um, John at johnmanis.com and that's M-A-N-E-S.com. 210-818-1496. You can go to pinnaclestorageproperties.com and read all about us. You can go to my YouTube channel, which is Pinnacle Storage Properties. Come join the fun. Perfect. Hey, uh, it's been... uh, it's it's been a great visit, and uh, I, I've been wanting to have you on for a little while now. I, you're you're my first self storage guest, so uh, I'm so I sorry for that. <laughs> no, I know. Well, you know, I had to find somebody. So yeah, I mean, you're now you're getting to the bottom of the barrel. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, man, uh, really appreciate the time. Super grateful, and uh, thanks for adding your value today. No problem. Let me know how I can help. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a rating and a review, which will help us introduce the podcast to other listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will give you access to other episodes you may have missed. Lastly, if you'd like to learn more about investing alongside us, then head on over to valueaddedpodcast.com. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week.